for me, I'm probably going to do this once, right? Started a company and I'll probably go all the way through selling it at some point. But that doesn't mean because I know how to run the business, I know how to raise money. And so what I figured out pretty quickly is that raising money is a full-time job. So you have to take a pause on what you're doing to raise the money. You know, best way to describe it is the most awkward thing I've ever done in my life. It's like, it is completely like being naked in front of somebody. You know, they're asking you questions that, you know, you generally don't ask people, you know, very detailed questions about the financial position. It was hard. I mean, I think raising money is, is difficult. But again, I think there are people who go from company to company and they like that. I didn't. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur, want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success, this podcast is for you. Today's guest is Gail Peace, CEO of Ludi, a physician timekeeping app and financial management system in Nashville, Tennessee. Gail gives us an inside look on her life as a CEO, building a successful team, seeking venture capital, and the importance of demonstrating value to your customers. But long before Gail was the CEO, she was already business-minded and forming a team around her to meet her customers' needs. When I was 12, I actually sold Avon. And my mom needed to be the one that actually called the orders in because I was 12. But I, you know, went around and put all the books on doors and took all the orders. But something really funny happened about six months in, this woman called me and said, you know, hey, can you come to my house and help me, you know, understand how to wear a lot of this makeup? And I mean, I was 12, I didn't even wear makeup. It was a very awkward sales call. She also made and sold birthday cakes, really anything she could to earn more money than was on offer for babysitting. After college, she had a career in healthcare, and she started to notice some gaps and in inefficiencies. And so while I was at Vanguard, I started noticing with some of these complex agreements that we had with doctors, we weren't doing a very good job paying them. It wasn't transparent for the doctor. And when the doctor needed to provide some type of documentation, we didn't make it easy. <laughs> so I just sort of identified that this was a gap, and it was a way to really partner better with your most important partner, the physician, and to be transparent and so forth. So I had the idea to create Ludi from there. Yeah. So when you were working with these hospitals, did you have in mind all along that you were thinking of what kind of a business you wanted to operate, that, that you eventually wanted to found, or did it really come out of these experiences that you had with doctors that this was a need that I wanted to fill? Yeah, it really came out of the need. I would say, you know, that entrepreneur word is so overused today, isn't it? I don't know. Sometimes it, it makes me a little crazy. Like there are these degrees now called entrepreneur. Okay. It's business. It's a business degree. An entrepreneur is somebody who takes the risk and this right. is bungee jumping every day. It's that kind of adrenaline rush when you don't know how you're going to make payroll in two weeks. I mean, just having that, that commitment to me is more of the entrepreneurial side. So no, I didn't know I was going to start a business. I, I used to joke with one of my girlfriends, we were both in sales. She was in uh, media sales. 
And I was in, you know, selling at the time, some kind of business development support SaaS product to hospitals. And we used to joke and say, gosh, we'd love to run our own company, but we don't know how to do anything. We just sell things. You know, if I had an idea, I would start a company. Many things changed at Vanguard the last year I was there. And I, I sort of sensed it was time for me to move on. And so it just kind of came together. They, you know, that it was a, a good time to try to do an op- this opportunity. I had some consulting options when I left Vanguard and none of that really felt right. And I'm not good at looking for a job when I have a job. So I usually just leave or else, mm-hmm. you know, figure out some eloquent way to work my way out. And then I figure out what my next move is. So I, I spent some time, you know, during the summer, the spring and summer trying to figure out 2013 what I wanted to do. And I just, I knew all of these complex agreements made it really difficult for the hospital to manage. There was no transparency. We couldn't see what we were spending. So I just really had the idea to build different software solutions that would help really identify and change the financial perspective on all of those investments for the hospital. Well, that's that's fantastic perspective. And, and, And this is one that has always personally interested me is that you've got this idea now, you know, you have a need that you need to fill, but what's the, what's the next step? I mean, so that first day you're just like, all right, I'm going to start this business. Who's the first call that you make or what's that, that next step that you take? Yeah, well, I did a lot of research. So because of the, the position I was in, which was fabulous, I met with many hospital CEOs around town. We would have you know, different partnership opportunities, discussions. We partnered with many different hospitals in our local area, especially on the tertiary and quaternary care. We were community hospitals, so we had different partners. So what I did was I made a list of 20 hospital CEOs that I could drive to. And I contacted these CEOs and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting this business. Can you give me your opinion? And people will meet with you for their opinion. They will not meet with you if you're trying to sell to them. And I wasn't trying to sell to them. And so what I did was I cobbled together wireframes and put them on my iPad. Again, remember this is 2012 (laughs) and I just used my iPad. I would, you know, go from right to left on and change the screen and it made it look like I was hitting on software. So I didn't build the software. I I built the concept of how it would work. And then I I think I only had 16 face-to-face meetings. Four of them didn't end up coming to fruition. But during those 15 minute meetings, I said, I really want your opinion want you to give me one of three things. One, oh, Gail, that's a great idea. Somebody will buy that someday. Two, nobody will ever buy that. Or three, I need it right now. And so I got two, I need it right now. So I was able to transition one of those over the next, I would say, 90 days into a contract. So I had our first contract before I had even coded the software. So then it became a little uncomfortable, like, oh my goodness, we've got to, we should be implementing and it's not really released yet. So that's okay. That, that problem you can handle. <laughs> right. And, and early on, was it, was it just you or did you kind of have a, a team with you at that time? Or was it that was just, just, yeah. So I, I did know, I had worked for another company that we sold in 2006 to WebMD. It was a company called Subimo. And so I knew of people that were developers. Quickly, by August, I think I incorporated in June. By August, I said, you know, this probably isn't going to work. Who should I work with? And so then I contracted in August with the company, and it's been a great partnership. But it's interesting, you know, you asked if it was just me. So then I brought on a utility player like six months in, somebody that could help me with marketing, database analysis, servicing the clients, training the doctors, 
and she kind of could do a lot of different things. And then from there, we finally found somebody to help with sales, you know, so that I didn't, wasn't the only one doing all of the sales and products and so forth. And so about two years in, I kind of figured out I'm gonna have to raise money. Hospitals mm -hmm. are, you know, they take a long time to make decisions. So I joined a healthcare accelerator program about 18 months out uh, when I started and they taught me how to raise money. Okay. So how was that experience with the accelerator? It was fabulous. So we did a program called Health Box and it was founded by Nina Nashif, who was the founder of Health Box. She's no longer there, but she is on my board now. She's one of my board members and really brilliant, brilliant lady. And she had worked with a company called Sandbox, an investment company, and then had this idea to do Health Box. And so we had space that we were able to use that was theirs. We, we spent really four months, I would say, in office with them. And then they let us stay. We kept using office space there, I would say, for like another year, probably. And then when I, when I went to move, Nina said, oh, no, no, we like having you here. I mean, they've gone through like two more classes and we would just all cram in. We were at these tables and, you know, it was a little tricky to do the sales aspects from there, you know, right. calling or having client calls because everything echoed. It was a warehouse building, you know, near the train track. So in the one conference room, the train would go by and, you know, people would say, oh, I can't hear you. I don't know what to do. I know <laughs> myself. And so what was, what would you say the primary benefit of HealthBox was for you? I mean, was it, did you have mentors along the way? Was it kind of being surrounded by other young companies? What, what was most helpful? Well, that was both of those things, Trevor. I would say, you know, unless you are a person that just goes out looking for businesses and starting them and you, you like any business as long as you're running it. For me, I'm probably going to do this once, right? Started a company and I'll probably go all the way through selling it at some point. But that doesn't mean because I know how to run the business, I know how to raise money. And so what I figured out pretty quickly is that raising money is a full-time job. So you have to take a pause on what you're doing to raise the money. And so Healthbox gave me um, a little bit of money, a little bit of breathing room for those four months where I could focus on learning how to raise money. And so it was the, the other colleagues in my program that were great to learn from and also from the mentorship of the program. It was very structured. So Healthbox really helped me I would say get focused around that. And so I started in November of 2013 and then we closed our, we closed a million dollar round in, in uh, June of 2014. So it was like a eight month process. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about it, but how was that experience of, of going out and pitching yourself to investors and attracting the right people to work with? You know, best way to describe it is the most awkward thing I've ever done in my life. It's like, it is completely like being naked in front of somebody. You know, they're asking you questions that, you know, you generally don't ask people, you know, very detailed questions about the financial position. It was hard. I mean, I think raising money is, is difficult, but again, I think there are people who go from company to company and they like that. I didn't really enjoy that as much as um, I would have hoped, but I was very fortunate in that I met people through HealthBox. So, and then I, I never looked back. I, I just, I knew that I wanted that one round to get us off the ground and we would grow as we could grow from there. I, you know, I suppose one could analyze my company and someday somebody will and say, okay, you could have raised more and grown faster. I don't know, I'm from Missouri, I'm kind of conservative take calculated risks. 
it was just more comfortable for me to do that one round. And we've been, you know, very successful since then. So we fund all of our own development and all of the things we need from our operations. So that's just been a more comfortable growing pace for me. And after you took on that investment, did you feel like your pressures around the business changed or was it always the same, uh, you know, having to, to continue to grow the business like you wanted it to? I would say it's, it's, it was always the same. Yeah, I, I think I put enough pressure on myself, really. I don't think it was any greater, if that was your question. Yeah, I didn't feel any increased pressure. I, I did feel like for the first time I could finally like make payroll. You know, it, every two weeks, it just seems like you blink and it's time to process payroll again. <laughs> so that, that made me feel a lot better. I'm like, okay, for the next 18 months, I can really focus on growing and getting clients. And, and then we'll, we'll go from there. And that was going to be my next question. I mean, what, what did you use that investment primarily for? Was it to build out the product further or to kind of grow the team? It was really to do the functions of, of marketing and to grow the team. I didn't have, you know, I was doing all product, HR, sales, um, you know, pretty much everything. And, and until even as recently as two and a half years ago, I probably held on to some of that stuff too long. But when you're a, an early stage company, you, you kind of wait till you really need somebody before you pull somebody else on. So by the time they get there, you're like, oh, thank goodness. I'm so busy. I can't even train you. I just don't even have the, hardly the time to sort through it. So, but we used it to not really on the product. The product was, you know, that last 5% to get you to perfect is really painful. And I've always known that. I've always been good at good get it done right, and then fix it as you go. So I think where some engineering type people, when they build a product, can't ever get finished, I already had the vision, let's get it out in this way and keep tweaking it and improving it. So the product held up really well. We did do a complete rewrite in 2000, let's see, probably five years in. We upgraded the platform and the user interface and you know, made things faster, better, but really the original product has done, has done really well. And we've added two more products to that original platform over the years. Tell us a little bit about kind of those additional products. What, what problems were those solving? The first thing we solved was really when the physician needs to provide some kind of documentation in order to get paid. So I'm a medical director. I have up to 20 hours a month that I can get paid for $200 an hour. I have to turn in a time log. So we created an app that the doctors use their phone and we served up all of the rules of each contract uniquely to each doctor so that their documentation was appropriate and proper because it came off their contract. So rather than them free texting something, and then we moved into really tackling on call. So on call for hospitals is a really big expense, especially if you're a trauma center I mean, millions and millions of dollars spent in, in the on-call arrangements. So we added in the calendaring feature and making sure that maybe somebody other than the doctor could record the time. And that was our second product called Shift Time Log. And then we released what we call Doc Time Spend, which is really additional contracts that hospitals use for hospital-based services, for huge contracts for things like pathology, anesthesia, we integrated those in that have other kind of payments. And so now our development work at the moment, we're releasing um, in a phased approach 
really anything to do with the physician employment contract. So any kind of productivity payments they might receive for worked RVUs. There's all these true ups that are done each quarter or annually. We're going to do all of that in our software. So we just keep growing into anything to do with that relationship between the hospital and the doctor. Well, I think you hit on something that I wanted to talk about a little bit. So, you know, a lot of the teams that we work with are interested in offering technology solutions to healthcare. And that's, you know, clearly what you do. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of those unique challenges are associated with offering technology into the healthcare space or working with doctors and working with all the regulations associated with that. What's been your experience and how have you overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, I think it's important for companies that you know, see healthcare as their next growth arena to hire people who come out of the industry because it is so nuanced. You know, somebody with connections or somebody that knows how to navigate the health systems. And that's certainly been the case for us on the sales side. We are most successful with our sales team when they have already been selling into hospitals. So they understand all of those nuances um, of how the hospitals work in the regulatory world. And then, you know, I've sold in my career to hospitals and to health plans, and they're very different, I would say, but something that's good, bad, and I don't know the right way to say this, it doesn't sound pejorative, but hospital executives are not paid to make decisions. So if they make a decision and it goes bad, they could lose their job, right? But there's a lot of people that don't make decisions. They're not really motivated to improve things or to take a little bit of a risk. So you really have to find those executives that see, I'm going to throw some money down and, and jump on a contract with this small early stage company. And I know they'll have my back. I mean, it's, it's a lot to ask, right? So it's important in the beginning to get some experience and get some clients and try, you know, I've read all the books about not trying to eat the big fish on, you know, too early. I almost did that myself. It was very scary. I think you really have to get people that know that industry because it's not something that's just, oh, 20% of the GDP, let's go there. You know, right. we're in banking. We could certainly figure out healthcare. <laughs> well, so you can, but you, you need some help. Yeah. Well, so tell us a little bit about that. You said you you tried to catch the big fish too early. What happened? Yeah, well, during HealthBox, I had an opportunity. We met different systems. And so there was a very large investor-owned healthcare system. I had three small hospital clients. And then I was dancing with one of the largest systems in the country. And so I, while I know I could have delivered, I would have had to build all the staff out to do so. And then um, just trying to to get that contract done was brutal. Investor-owned systems are tough. They're very good business people running them. And they really work hard on getting their vendors down on price. So it, it finally came down to we proposed a price and they came back and said, essentially they came back and said they would give me 18% of what I said my price was. Oh, <laughs> I, was like, I don't know much. I'm kind of new at this, but that's not going to work. I'm like, right. you wouldn't want me to agree to do that. I won't be able to deliver. So we you know, we sort of parted ways. I had some stern warnings from people there that said, you know, once we walk away, we will never do business with you. And I was like, I don't know what you want me to say. You're going to give me not even a fifth of what I need to service this account. And what's really funny is now flash forward, we're eight years in business. Two years ago, we got a big fish slightly larger than them. And that price I said is exactly what I got. And that's exactly what we needed to service and to deliver comfortably. Wow. So I was not wrong eight years ago on that price. 
But, oh, so you got your your prize, not the eighteen percent of the prize. Oh, and then not that client. It's with a different client of comparable size. Yeah. But I I was not wrong on needing that money to be able to deliver. Our software is very um, sneaky, sophisticated because it looks like it's super easy because it should be for the doctor, but then it's nuanced of what's going on behind it. So it you know we really spend a lot of time helping people get all of their contracts in there. We don't just drop it off with a hug and a kiss. We implement, we make sure we have client service people to make sure they're using it right. We'll touch base annually and sort of scan through their site with them and tell them the things we see they could do differently to make it more efficient. It takes support. It just is better if the client uses it. So that's where we we really focus on not just dropping it off. It's not just software. It's a solution. Well, when you, when you talked about having to deal with particular terms within a contract, you know, I guess as a lawyer, immediately in the back of my head, I was like, that's that's a lot of customization or uniqueness for each client, I imagine. Is it, it difficult is. to is it difficult to kind of scale that up then or is it are there enough commonalities between them? There are payment mechanisms that differ, but the the base of the contract is pretty pretty similar, right? So you're an attorney and we and we love making um sort of jokes when we do our sales calls, we'll say like, how many attorneys are in the room? And they'll raise their hand and then our next question is, do you guys take any math classes? <laughs> because we get these contracts and mathematically they just don't make sense. So right. an example might be the contract will read, the doctor will do 10 hours a week, up to 10 hours a week, not to exceed 520 hours in the year. And they'll turn in monthly time logs. That all sounds good, right? But then you divide it out. 520 divided by 12 is 43.33. So then we'll go back to the client and say, are you really giving them 43.33 hours every month? And they'll say, well, no, we're only giving them 40 hours. And like, okay, well, then that's 400, you know, that then that's not enough hours compared to the 520. Like you're, they're, they're leaving a little shy. So anyway, we always joke about that. I had to get a lawyer. I've never, I've never understood that though. Cause I, I've seen it in law school classrooms and CLEs everywhere. Just like lawyers visibly cringe when math comes up. And I've never really understood that. Yeah. But well, if- it's true. And sometimes we'll read the contract and it'll say, okay, physician will be paid. $7,500 a quarter for all of these duties. And we're like, awesome. How many hours? It never says in there, like how many hours? And, and then we'll go back and say, well, if they turn in one hour and make 7,500, you have a fair market value issue. Cause this is so highly regulated. Like you can't pay them $7,500 an hour. So what, what does happen over time as our clients implement with us and begin to trust us, we begin to help guide the attorneys of here are some templates, like here's all of the duties you've already written. Don't write any new ones on your next contract. Pick some of these, like, cause there's really some well-written ones. And then they'll be like, that say the same thing as another one that's similar, but not as, you know, so pick one and, you know, template it out or we'll give guidance on, you know, monthly time logs. Let's make sure that the math works so that it's not a weird fraction of a, of a payment for the doctor. So. Anyway, I like joking about that, but yeah, I've learned a lot about contracts because that's what we do. We intake all these contracts. We built software to, to OCR this quickly so we can load them in more quickly and figure out what our questions are. And yeah, it's been, it's been a fun process. (laughs) Absolutely. I wanted to go back to something you had mentioned because you talked about how selling to the healthcare space, you're often dealing with people who are averse to taking on potential risks any suggestions or tips for, for people as they are trying to convince people to take on that risk to work with a, st- a small company or to work with somebody who maybe hasn't proven themselves out for a number of customers yet? Yeah, we used to call it FUD. 
Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. FUD. <laughs> so right. used to call it FUD in the old days. Now you would call it the return on investment. So what you really need to do is, is brush up your business case. If someone's going to give you money for your product, it either has to help them increase their revenue or decrease their expenses, right? The only thing we do in business is I need to do my business better. So it's either going to help me grow my revenue or cut my expenses. So with that framework in mind, you know, sketch out what your product does. And then if you convince the people that you're selling to that this is real and you make them nervous enough about missing that, then you get the action. So that's really, you know, we really sell on the return on the investment. And, and I'll tell you when people implement our software, there's this halo effect where you get a percent or two pickup in the first year, just because it feels a little big brother. It is a compliance tool in addition to being a financial tool. So there are some benefits that just trickle down. And now that we've had clients for eight years, we've had the same clients, you know, so I can see their same store year over year, what they're doing. And, and people do spend less every year in managing this, I think, better when they have software to do so. So there's a lot. It, it also identifies opportunities, you know. So anybody selling software has to figure, any product has to figure out, how do I help their business case? Like, what is the return? And then you just got to make them nervous about not doing it, right? So that the fear of non-action is, is greater than the fear of action. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I imagine your kind of prior experience, both selling into hospitals for other products and then also kind of working on the biz dev side kind of helped inform that, that approach. Do you, do you feel like your experience prior was pretty critical to your success now? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'll get um, the sales team may, you know, get me in front of a prospect with them or a client and immediately I can empathize. I know exactly what they're going through. And so you know, just establishing that credibility that you know what they're dealing with and going through and here's how we handled it and here's how some of our clients are. And and I think we, you know, we listen, we try to be very empathetic and listen, figure out really if our if our product is going to help them before you rush off on your own agenda, right? Like listen carefully and then, you know, figure it out. But we have for me, business is it's fun. It's fun to work with people who want to improve something and we work really hard to help them improve it. And, and I think that's what I'm most proud of as the team of people that I've assembled. They're amazing. We're, we're 20 full-time equivalents and I probably contract for like maybe six, maybe another six, if you count all the, you know, the stuff that I outsource. And so, you know, we're a small but mighty team. And I think when you hire good people and, you know, just come at things from a real true point of, we want to help clients. And we, you know, when we help clients, we sell more and that's a win-win for everybody. Right. Tell me a little bit about how you went about growing your team. Did you have a specific approach to, to hiring or kind of a mindset as you went out and looked for people to join the team? You know, because I've done a few uh, smaller, you know, startup company experiences, there's a group of people, once you work with, you know, you kind of like and trust and know. And so I would say that the first eight years have been really somebody that I knew or somebody that I know knows well. So we're 100% virtual and we already were before COVID hit. So, you know, the pandemic has made a lot of people have to change their business model and so forth. We were already structured with everything in the cloud with everybody working from workstations. If anybody's computer gets stolen, there's nothing on it. We keep everything 
in locations, at least they should be. So, um, you know, we can replace computers or send it to somebody quickly and stand it up. So we were in a good position when COVID hit because people were scrambling around trying to figure out how to work Zoom and YouTube, you know, whatever go-to meeting. And we already had all of that in place. But I would say now as we've grown, sort of our networks of people are running out. So um, I just hired a QA engineer who started two weeks ago. And that's the first person I've hired that I haven't known. I posted the job. I think my product colleague put it up on hacker.com and we got like probably 15 extremely qualified applicants. And so, yeah, I've picked, selected this gentleman who lives out in LA, never met him in person. Didn't even see him until our company call this week. Had never even seen him in person. And so we're also hiring a chief technology officer right now and I hired a search firm. And it scared the daylights out of me because your culture... Your culture is really the secret sauce of, of your business. And so we've really been able to handpick or people knew enough about us or knew someone who worked here or worked with somebody before in another job. So as we grow and expand, I think that's the part that keeps me up at night. How do you maintain that really hardworking culture that people feel like this is their company? Because everybody does. Everybody here feels like this is their company. Well, and maybe you could talk about a little bit about that, because I think, like you said, a lot of people felt, found themselves being thrown into remote work and are now trying to figure out how to adapt to it. But maybe you could speak a little bit about how you have maintained a, a company culture that you wanted while remote. Yeah, it's all about, um, I think I did something in Forbes, actually, and in, in the, recently in their magazine, I think I did a three-point thing on how to manage uh, your company virtually. It's all about communication. So you know, before COVID, we didn't turn the cameras on. We had a go-to meeting every week. But now, because we haven't been able to get together at all for eight months, we turn the cameras on. So it's a balance of that, though. Like, not everybody needs a camera on all the time. Like, all day, you can't sit in front of your, your Zoom meeting. So I would say that for us, it's just making sure people understand what's expected of them and that they're honest with you. Like, while we were already prepared to work from home and very successful in doing so, all of a sudden everybody's kids are home and you're trying to homeschool them and your spouse is there. And it's like, wait, this is my space. And now y'all are here. So I think we've gone through that learning curve a little bit. And and we were very flexible, especially in the early days and said, look, if you need to flex your hours, just put them on your calendar. Cause there's nothing worse than trying to find somebody and you and they're, it's not on their calendar. Like, just put yourself out. I don't care. Put the hours you're working or however you, you want to do it so that I can find you or find somebody if I need to. And a lot of our implementation team, while there are client calls, a lot of the work is, is very diligent and very independent. So it doesn't matter if they work between 12 p.m. and 4 a.m. It really doesn't. So we had some folks flex like that in the beginning. And I feel like we've gotten to some kind of weird new normal that's not great, but we're all kind of dealing right now, right? As school either gets back in or doesn't get back in session. <laughs> so it's calmed down a little bit because um, the pandemic people, you know, people get stressed out for, for different and, and it manifests in different ways. So I saw weird behaviors of people that I had never had seen. And it's just because of stress. It's everybody handles it differently. This is a very stressful time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's all of the normal stresses kind of condensed into a single moment, it almost seems like. It's a very confusing time, very unsettling. Absolutely. 
So I did want to ask you, you know, the literature is pretty extensive about some of the unique challenges facing uh, female founders, particularly. And I wondered if there was anything you felt comfortable kind of speaking about what your experience has been and whether you've had kind of uphill challenges because you were a female founder or if that hasn't been your experience. Just yeah, I, I just I think anybody raising money, it's tremendously difficult. So I don't know if my path was any different than a male's path. I'll never know if I had a harder time or not. But I would say that for me, what really helped was that accelerator program to to get the skills and the knowledge and mentors to help me figure out what I was doing and help me package that pitch up because it is packaging. (laughs) Of course, I had a great law firm that helped me too, which was fabulous. Um, Justin and Hannah were like my go-to people through both the health box thing and then then my series A, really, because you're going to do this once. So it's maybe twice, you know, whatever. So um, that part was hard, but I don't know for me, Trevor, if I, I think, look, I think it's hard to raise money no matter who you are. And I would say that six years after I've raised money, it's just so depressing to see that the same amount goes to female entrepreneurs, which is shy of 2%. It's just a venture capital. So I did the VC world. So I think there's something to it. I think it's there, you know, we all have biases that we just, you know, have to admit we have, we're reading a great book. Um, we do book club at work too, um, called how to be an anti-racist right now. And it's really helped me look at a lot of situations differently, but I think there is some inherent bias in the VC world around gender. So it, it just has to be part of it. So I think to overcome that, you have to be deliberate and set up groups of people. And what, what I hope to do someday is be helpful to women entrepreneurs to help them through the path that I had, because it's not, you know, it's not an easy, it's not an easy path. Now, is that something you've been able to do kind of at this stage in your career is, is mentor business execs or people coming up and forming their own business? Or is that something you hope to do in the future? Something I hope to do in the future. I, I, it's hard to explain. So I, I joined this past year, the entrepreneur organization, the EO, which I don't know why I didn't know about that before, but that has been like therapy to talk to people who are in your exact shoes because there are not many people you can talk to and you can't talk to people that you work with about everything. You just can't because you're the CEO. So the entrepreneur organization is, has been really helpful for me to have somebody to talk to. But I would say this, you know, starting a company is not like a 40 or 50 or 60 or even 80 hour week job. It is 100% of your time. And sometimes at the expense of things in your personal life. And I've talked to a lot of founders, a lot of people who've gone through this, you know, um, your family life suffers, your personal life suffers, because this becomes, it has to become everything to get where you need to go. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I haven't had a lot of time to do that yet. Talk about that a little bit, because, you know, I hear that from a lot of of founders and CEOs about how all encompassing the job is. Do you view it as this is a time of life, I got to get through this, or is there a way that you can find some balance amidst the craziness? Yeah. I, I would say that that's what you strive to do is find the balance to, you know, through the craziness, but it's, it, it's hard because it becomes, you, you put so much time and effort into it, you know, and maybe people sometimes stay longer when it's not successful. I mean, we've been lucky. So since 2016, we've been cash flow positive. And so we're very successful today. And so it's allowed us to do things, but if, we were still on that upside down part. It's just wearing like, cause you've got to figure out how you're going to keep things going. And is it the right thing to keep things going? And sometimes your family thinks you're nuts 
Like, what do you mean? You're still talking about that. We talked about that yesterday. What, why can't you move on? Well, I can't move on. You're like, solve this. So I don't know if I've talked to a lot of people and I think different people handle it better and balance it better. Yeah. So it's something I'm always striving to do. <laughs> Fair enough. So who would you say are your biggest influences in your career? You know, I don't know. Steve Jobs is always somebody that I just really thought like he just did it right. Right. I would say that I just take whatever I can learn from somebody and try to be positive. So I'm not sure it's been like one person, but I've learned through my career. Wow. I really like how he managed that situation, tough employee situation. I really like how that guy did that business plan. I really like how that lady positioned, you know, so I think I take, I'm constantly learning And I think that helps. I I think I have just a desire, a constant desire to learn. So yeah, I make our company, we do book club. We read about three books a year, anything like crazy books. We read on the art of tidying up. (laughs) That was a really good one. (laughs) So anything from that to more like a business book or something as complex as this, how to be an anti-racist now, because I think these are important topics to keep expanding, you know, your thinking. So I don't know that it'd be any one person, but a variety of people. And then with your book club, do you have like group discussions or do you read them? And yeah, our Monday call, we usually, not every week, but usually every two weeks, you'll have a chapter assigned and then we just open it up for discussion. And it's really funny because I think people enjoy it, even if they don't speak, there's like the same five out of 20 that talk. And then I wonder, are they buying the book? Cause I, (laughs) they expense stuff. And then the one day I went back to look to see if people had even bought the book. Or maybe they're just not expensing it. I don't, I don't know. So some of them might completely be ignoring me, but I, I'm in my happy bubble. And I don't know. From a, from a serial lurker in those types of environments, they're probably reading the book and enjoying very much the discussion going on around them. Yeah, yeah. Just not everybody wants to chat. I get it. Right. <laughs> what do you enjoy most about being a, a CEO? Living the dream, Trevor. I feel like I did hit a glass ceiling. It was very real in my career. And so I like now being able to problem solve and drive the business in a correct direction by taking input of others. I like having the ability to do the right thing. I was actually doing some interviews earlier today and we talked a lot about a couple sales cycles that I've been involved in. One in the state of Florida, I won't mention the name of the hospital, but, but I actually walked out. I, it, it felt like they were going to use our software to do something nefarious, which is not what um, our software is about. And so the more I probed, the more I thought, this just doesn't fit with me. And so that's really powerful to be able to do business with people you want to do business with and not have to take business that you don't feel good about. So that's only happened twice in eight years. But, you know, if, it, if something doesn't feel right, it's usually not right. And I've sort of run that way. So I, this has been, you know, great. It's been great to assemble a team of people and to see their success. And I feel like each one, you know, we had five Ludi babies this year. <laughs> each person like having another child or whatever. I feel like part of what we do is allowing them to live their life and their sure. dream. I feel very proud of that. Like, it's not just about the 20 people, but it's like, I feel like they're families. I feel like that's like a little bit of the pressure of that too, you know? And well, I was going to ask you, cause that, you know, related to that joy of, of knowing that you're helping support these families is that yeah. pressure of knowing you're supporting these families. Yeah. Which I think in, in April, I thought, what am I doing with COVID? And then it's okay. We got, <laughs> we're getting through it. 
So I feel like based on what you said, I, I know the answer to this, but have you ever at any point stopped and said, you know, I wish I, I could go back to the corporate world or go back to, to working for somebody else? Oh gosh, no. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't think I can now. Well, my chief operating officer tells me I can never work for anybody again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I like to think I'm a fair person and not unreasonable and pretty open-minded. So I think that's part of the problem. I think ego really can mess people up. And I mm -hmm. work really hard not to have that, just to like do the right thing for the business. Even if what I thought starts to begin to sound not like the right thing, then let go, then, you know, change, like, let it go. <laughs> you know, that's, that's an interesting point. Is there, is that something that you consciously do or is that something you've learned to do over time or is something that you've implemented? I kind consciously of... do and why I meditate, like shut your mouth and listen, like don't talk so fast, you know, literally yeah. like I really had to stop myself to not voice my, and I don't know, people that I work with may say I still voice my thing a lot, but I try really hard to stop and listen and be thoughtful about, you know, I don't know. I don't always know what's right. There's a danger for especially new or younger CEOs to feel like they have to have the answer. And if they, they don't, then they're not providing leadership. So I think it's always interesting to hear, no, you gotta, you gotta take on that, those other perspectives. Yeah, for sure. Well, so we are the Founder Shares podcast. And so I like to ask all of our guests, if there was one piece of advice that you wanted to share with somebody who's thinking about starting a new business or somebody who's, you know, just started their business and are up and running, what's that piece of advice that you'd want to share? Well, that's a good one. Okay. Um, my advice will come with a story. So when you start a company and you're at a cocktail party, people say, what do you do? And you say, oh, I started this company. And they're like, really? I have the best idea. Like I would be rich. I can't tell you what it is, but I would be so rich if I just did this. So I'll look at them seriously and be like, you should absolutely do it, right? You should absolutely do it. So I think that people think success is about the idea. And so my, my bit of advice is that this that I'm doing is 99.5% grit and 0.5% idea. It is about having the stamina, finding the attorneys, finding the people to help you set it up, finding the customers, finding the employees, figuring out how to file your taxes, figuring out how to, how to do payroll, figuring out how to set up your business license. Everything you do for the first two years is new. Every single day. I remember thinking, if I could just do the same thing twice, one day, I would, it would be a good day. <laughs> so I would say, if you're going to start, if you have an idea to start a business, do it, but just know that you're really going to you're going to have to have the stamina and, and just really be able to fight through it to make it work. It just, things don't just happen. I mean, the Twitters don't, they're not accidents. They just don't like, woof. it's like magic, right? I mean, there's a lot of years of, of some hard work in there, but I, I appreciate you inviting me to do the, the podcast. That was super fun. Oh, I loved it. And I, you know, I appreciate that, that insight. Cause I think, you know, in some respects, the idea is the easy part, and then you actually have to go and build a company. So congratulations to you on where things are at with Ludi, and I so much appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks so much, and appreciate all you guys do as well. That was Gail Peace, CEO of Ludi. You can find more about Ludi at ludiinc.com. That's L-U-D-I-I-N-C.com. I'm so grateful to Gail for sharing her insight and experiences with us. If you're a founder or business owner like Gail and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. 
We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares Podcast.